Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you all know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, and I'm really having a lot of fun sharing it with you. But before I begin on this episode, I'm excited to let you know that Algonquin Defining Moments now has its own line of merch such as t-shirts, coffee cups, water bottles, and journals. And I've also set up a patron program for those interested in more directly supporting my continued research and recording efforts. Now to reach both of these, click on either of the badges or links that you can find on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com, or my Podbean page, www.algonquinparkheritage.podbean.com. In my last episode, I shared with you some of the origin stories of another important, highly participative part of the Algonquin community, those whose ancestors, some as many as five generations back, were invited by the Ontario government to lease small plots of land on a specific set of lakes and build summer cabins. In this episode, I'm thrilled to be chatting with the patriarch of one such five-generation family, Sandy Lewis. Sandy is the grandson of both Dr. Alexander Peary and Thomas Bertram, who were the first Algonquin wilderness adventurers who purchased Alan and David Gilmore's summer cabins on the south end of an island in the middle of Canoe Lake, just south of what is today's Big Wapameo Island. Now, before I introduce you to Sandy, I wanted to provide a bit of context. As you've heard me mention the Gilmore brothers in many episodes... According to John W. Hewson and Courtney C.J. Bond's 1964 book, Hurling Down the Pine, the Gilmore name appeared associated with lumbering in the Ottawa area in the 1830s. It seems that Alan Gilmore Sr. established the parent firm based in Glasgow, Scotland in 1804, with branches in New Brunswick, Quebec City, and Montreal early in the century. The firm sent agents everywhere who were aggressive in their timber purchasing tactics to the great joy of Ruggles Wright of Ontario, whose family we talked about in episode 14. They were the first to raft logs to Quebec City, down the Ottawa River. Over the years, there were quite a number of Gilmores involved with the company's operations. Alan Gilmore Jr. managed the Quebec operations. He turned out to be a highly effective manager and became a leading purchaser of square timber from the rafts coming down the St. Lawrence River. In 1834, two of Allen's younger brothers, John and David, joined the firm, and through their efforts, it became one of the largest shipping firms in Britain. At one point, owning 130 ships and employing some 5,000 employees. Another Gilmore cousin, Alan of Schatz, to distinguish him from his cousin, also named Alan, took over the operations in the Ottawa-Gatineau area. Here, company operations spanned from supplying lumber camps with provisions to purchasing for export square timber and sawn lumber to later acquiring its own timber rights and managing their own lumbering operations, mostly around the Gatineau River. By the end of the 1840s, Gilmore and Company apparently was one of the largest limit holders in the region with more than 10,000 square kilometers under lease. In the 1870s, building sawmills became the hot new trend, 
But by the 1890s, an extended depression that began in 1883 did a number on prices and profits. The company got in trouble and almost went bankrupt, but was reorganized in 1877 with grandsons Alan and David Gilmore, along with another brother, also named John, and a cousin, John David, taking over management of the firm. The Quebec arm was closed, and the remaining business was concentrated in the Ottawa area in Trenton. In 1852, a large sawmill had been established in Trenton, and David took over the management of those operations. Allen, in turn, stayed in Ottawa, handling the firm's business affairs and the lobbying of the federal government. Brother John and cousin John David took over responsibility for the Ottawa-area sawmills. At the time, David Gilmore was just 28 years old. Trenton was a key location for lumbering and sawmilling because it sat at the confluence of the two major river systems, the Trent and the Moira, into Lake Ontario. Also by the 1890s, most of the pristine lumber had been cut decades before. This meant that finding enough logs to feed the mill became a challenge. According to those who knew him, David, like his forebears, was apparently ambitious, hard-nosed, self-confident, almost to the point of arrogance, and was very much used to getting his own way. He was proud of the Gilmore name and reputation and was driven to succeed. In some ways, this pride seems to have sometimes clouded his judgment. During 1879-1880, extensive renovations were made to the Trenton Mill to both reduce the amount of manual labor needed to run it, as well as introduce lots of new technologies. These included gas lights that enabled night operations, mechanisms to lessen saw blade vibration that reduced the amount of sawdust that was produced, to the area's first telephones. But alas, in May 1881, a fire broke out and destroyed most of the main part of the mill. Rather than withdraw, David decided to rebuild. At an apparent cost of $250,000, including electric lights driven by a giant steam engine, which was one of the earliest electric light installations in Canada. The new mill, though, could cut 3,000 logs over a 10-hour shift generating some 350,000 to 400,000 board feet of lumber, as well as a million pieces of lath, and 100,000 shingles, pickets, and headings. As a comparison, the old mill could handle about 425 logs a day. The net net of all this, and why it all matters, is that David Gilmore now had a mill with tremendous capacity, but not enough logs in the area to feed his monster. And, of course, things weren't helped by another economic downturn that started and lasted through to the new century. Needing more lumber sources so as to run at capacity, David decided to attend a timber rights auction in 1892. There, he purchased at three times the prices paid in the previous auction in 1887 what turned out to be 1,650 square kilometers of what he thought were choice timber limits in the Canoe Lake area. At the time, Gilmore figured there'd be enough timber there to supply his mill for another 30 years. What came next was an epic tale of an effort that tried to move logs from the highlands in Algonquin to Trenton. This story is told by Gary Long and Randy Whiteman 
In their 1998 book, When Giants Fall, The Gilmore Quest for Algonquin Pine, I'll leave for another episode. But its impact on Canoe Lake and the district area was indelible and irreversible. The net-net, however, was that David's escapades were a bust. It did, though, lead to the building, as you know, of a sawmill on the northwest shore of Canoe Lake at Mowat in 1895-96, and the building of two vacation cottages by David and his brother Alan on the island that was about a one and a half kilometers south of the mill site in 1896-1897. This, of course, is its relevancy to this story, as those cottages are still standing today, over 125 years later. With this backdrop, I'm thrilled to have joining me today Sandy Lewis, whose family, it turns out, were the first known leaseholders in Algonquin Park, who bought the Gilmore Cottages and settled on Canoe Lake in 1906. Welcome so much to Algonquin Defining Moments. Thank you. When I first did my book on the leaseholding in in the park, I hadn't realized how many families there were that had very, very deep roots in uh, in Algonquin. And so I thought maybe a place to start our, our conversation would be for you to tell us a little bit about how far back your family actually goes. <laughs> and and because uh, I believe it's five generations, right? Yeah. yeah. Well, uh, 1905 was when my first showed up with uh, his uh, Uncle Tom and the canoe trip. So they, uh, that, that's as far as we go back for the park. So in 1905, Dr. Alexander Peary and Thomas Bertram were friends as well as relatives. From Dundas. Huh. And how did Dr. Peary, my recollection is that he, he was practicing medicine in Costa Rica. How did he end up down there? Well, uh, when he graduated from uh, Queens, uh, he took over uh, temporarily then a practice in Costa Rica and just stayed ever since. Hmm. Any idea why he would have done that? I have no idea. No idea. Interesting. Maybe adventure. The reason they're related is my great grandmother and and a sister of Uncle Tom. And they also they also went to Queens together in meds. So that was the connect. So they went to Queens together, went on a canoe trip, and just decided to go to Algonquin Park and then stumbled across the the cottages that had been abandoned for quite Basically, some time, yeah. right? For whatever reason, I was quite taken by the uh, remoteness and uh, uh, decided to follow up with the um, Gilmore uh, closure people. And uh, uh, there's a fellow named Galnot, whose father was the uh, go-between with my grandfather and the company. And uh, he purchased it, uh, as was, all boarded up and uh, not used for several years. Hmm. Before this episode, I did an episode on some of the early cottages that were built, and and it it seems Mm -hmm. there were two kinds. There were those that were just big logs, uh, and then there were those that were 
prefab cottages, but yours isn't like that at all. Can you tell us a little bit about the buildings themselves? Well, the, the, the buildings were uh, basically uh, the same you'd see in Trenton at that time, particularly the, uh, the bigger one, uh, Loon's Retreat. They're both very large, both 3,500 square feet. So, so they're, they're big houses, not wow. cottages. And um, they, uh, they, they are built differently. The, the Loon's Retreat was built to, to handle uh, a maid servant in her own separate bedroom in the back and back stairs to go down to the kitchen to prepare everything for the, the family. Hmm. And uh, the other, other differences, uh, there was one main fireplace that actually heated uh, three bedrooms. And uh, that plus the uh, stoves and the halls and the pipes, they, they, they actually did, I think, use it one winter. Wow. Now, the other cottage, Uncle Tom's cabin, is, is a different design. It's just a fireplace and uh, no uh, back stairs. It's just a, more like a cottage. More like a cottage cottage. Hmm. Uh, and then I heard that there was actually lath and plaster walls in, in one of them? Well, in, in both of them, there were lath and plaster. And uh, in Loon's Retreat, there was actually a, a subflooring that was supposed to add insulation in the winter. Wow. That, uh, that, that subflooring was actually removed by uh, one of my relatives to make, uh, make stuff. Now, I heard also, I guess it was in uh, Mary Garland's book on the history of Moet, where she was talking. Uh, she, had, in that book, had done a lot of research on actual sawmills and the construction and the equipment and all of that kind of stuff. And um, she said that that one of the things that was interesting was that, that those cottages were probably constructed from planks that were from the oh, actual yeah. mill that was yeah. around at that time. Do you believe that's true? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And they, of course, then they had a huge uh, supply of manpower and, uh, and artisans and people that could put that stuff together. Right. They, they did it uh, probably uh, a year or two only before the mill closed. I think it was that close. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that, that's probably about right. Uh, because by 1899, it was, it was pretty well defunct. Yeah. Uh, as best That's as I've been right. able to ascertain. Hmm. Well, some of the construction in, in the house is, is stuff you, you can't find these days. It's beautifully done. Hmm. Uh, the doors were, were beautiful, fine. Uh, like it, it, was, it was something, like I say, pulled out of uh, Trenton and and spirit it into the park. Mm -hmm. uh, the other thing I should mention, if you look at, at a road map, there's a little place called Gilmore, about halfway to Trenton. And I checked that out and, and uh, 
David Gilmore actually built a, a, another cottage or house on that property when he was logging that area. And I checked it all out and there's nothing left. He had a thing about how it was. <laughs> and his house in, in Trenton is, was monstrous. Wow. One story I read somewhere was also that the Gilmore brothers didn't get along very well and may have even built a fence between the two cottages. Do you have any insight into anything like that? I have a piece of barbed wire. Really? So you think they did actually put a barbed wire fence between the two cottages? Isn't that funny? I remember uh, picking up quite a few links. Wow. So, yes. <laughs> <laughs> So it's the 1900s, Dr. Peary and your grandmother, Jean, are based in Costa Rica, and there's five kids that are in various boarding schools. And everybody would get together in the summer. Right, that was a family uh, get together. And um, uh, very, I guess, very important ah. to all of them. And so then your your mother was one of those children? Yes. Can you tell us a little bit about your grandmother, Jean? She seems to have been the powerhouse uh, behind uh, the family and their, their annual get-togethers there. Yeah, she uh, uh, went to Queens and met uh, her husband. And uh, was probably one of the few women that ever ever got to Queens at that time. Hmm. I think she took a, just a general degree, and uh, they got they ended up getting married. And that was the end of her story. Except she was uh, extremely, like you say, hardworking and organized. I can't believe the days she put in and what she accomplished and what she managed to get other people to do. She was a, a, a going concern. Mm -hmm. So how did she and Dr. Peary organize and get everybody there? I mean, that's a lot of kids and a lot of distance to go. Well, it, was, it was, must have been quite an ordeal because what they would do is they, they'd pick up, they'd go to Eaton's in Toronto and get all the supplies they needed for two and a half months, everything. And they would load that onto the train and the train uh, had a, a sleeping car. Train would go up to Scotia Junction, uh, get uh, uh, taken off and they would wait for in the morning for the next train to go down to Canoe Lake and they, they would take the, the train down. So it was a pretty well a 24 hour trip. Then they'd arrive at Canoe Lake and then they had to unload everything, uh, put everything on a, on a rowing barge and row everything over to the cottage. Wow. It was a logistic nightmare, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Can't imagine, because that would be, uh, for those who aren't familiar with Canoe Lake, that would be a good half a mile rowing, right? Yeah, <laughs> and I mean the 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 hydro didn't come in until the fifties, so it must have been also no electricity, right? Right. Yeah, it was all uh, kerosene lamps and uh, 
fireplaces, candles. Uh, eventually, they got a propane fridge in there, but before that, it was just ice boxes. Ice, wow. You know, blocks. And that was part of my job. Move the, move the ice blocks up every day to the ice box. Now, where was the ice stored? There's a, a small uh, a building about 100, 100 feet um, from the cottage. It was the ice house, and the ice house was, was stored by local guys who would put the ice in in the winter, covered up with sawdust. And my job was to, was to pick out a, a block of ice a day, wash it off, take it up, and uh, put it in the ice box. <laughs> that was my, one of my first jobs. The other job I had was cutting kindling. And uh, another job I had was uh, we had a rotating uh, washing machine where you, you had, held the handle and moved it back and forth. My, my job was doing a couple of hundred of those every time we had washed it. I think now's a good time for a musical interlude. And this time I have some wonderful piano music from a fellow Canoe Lake lover, Sarah Spring. Her work can be found at sarahspringpiano.ca. And this song is called Forever Unknown.
Now, my recollection, Sandy, is that one time you told me that your grandmother was an incredible organizer. What was that all about? Well, it was uh, regular. <laughs> Every day was a, a special day. For example, uh, Monday would be uh, wash day. Uh, Tuesday would be uh, baking day. Wednesday would be ironing day. Thursday would be, you know, Every day had its special purpose. The amazing thing that I remember is <clears throat> they ironed every sheet, every shirt, everything that was ironable using uh, metal irons that they heated in the stove. Wow. And they, these were, I mean, this was an all day job. You can imagine earning all the age with eight or nine dozen people. Wow! <laughs> Another day was baking, and uh, every every day there was there was an assignment, and everybody had to chip in. Wow! There no slackers. <laughs> so there, there, that was a big difference. It wasn't much free time. <laughs> Now, my now I I've only I've, I was visiting some folks on Rock Lake a few years ago who actually uh, still had or still use one of the original stove, one of those big cast iron wood stoves, and and my re my recollection it's been a few years since I've seen it, but my recollection was there was this kind of reservoir where you put water in on one side. Yeah, uh, and then there was the place where you, you know, you you heated, and then there there put the wood in to cook, and then there was another place that looked like an oven kind of yeah. thing space, as well as the the metal the metal on top that you put the pots and pans. Yeah. Uh, so you're saying the irons would have been just sort of stuck on top of that, so you would have had to heat that up to a temperature to. Oh, I don't know how she uh, cooked in, in summer heat over a wood stove every single day. Well, and if, as you and say, a dozen people, right? Sometimes? Yeah. yeah. Oh. Up to that, doesn't it? Wow. <laughs> she she was a tough, 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 tough boy. Mm. Wow. And, and you said also that you had, uh, you'd found a, a treasure trove of some of her old recipes? Yes, yeah. There, there was quite a challenge for me to decipher her writing, but I managed to get through it. And uh, the, uh, the recipes are interesting. Some of them are, are excellent, but a lot of them are difficult to, my grandchildren have had difficulty with because it, they were not explicit in terms of quantities of things like a pinch of this and a pinch of that, as opposed to a spoonful of this. And a spoonful of that. A lot of that was in her head, I'm sure. Now, I know as a child, it's hard to remember, you know, I don't, well, I do remember some things more as a teenager, but but I'd, I'd be curious as to what kinds of meals, I mean, we're, we're you know, we're talking two or three months worth of food that you had to get from Eaton's. That means much of it must have been either preserved in some way or in tin cans or, you know, those sorts of things, right? Well, bread and biscuits and that certainly were a big item. Uh, pancakes were a big item. Uh, usually they had 
one big meal a week, a week of uh, roast beef or, or, or something, or chicken probably, and uh, a lot of potatoes, a lot of, uh, they had canned, I remember canned beef, lots of eggs. Of course, they had a chicken house and that helped. Oh, they had a chicken house. Okay. Yeah. They also had a cow there one year. So they had fresh milk every day one year at least. <laughs> they borrowed the cow from somebody up in the in the, in the Moat area. Right. Yeah, I think uh, Annie Fraser used to have several cows, I think, that she, yeah. I guess, loaned out for a price, perhaps. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, and bacon was a big item. Ah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Any ideas about what folks did to entertain themselves, given there was no TV and <laughs> any of that stuff? Yeah. Well, they they uh, they, they did a lot of reading. Uh, the men did a lot of uh, small time work uh, around the, around the uh, property. Like uh, fashioning tables, and, you know, building buildings, stuff like that. But in the evenings, they, they invariably had a, a card game, a bridge game. That was a big item. Mm. And then there, there would be a, just chat, knitting, and stuff like that. But their uh, their entertainment, of course, they're under, they didn't have much time left after a day's work. <laughs> Not like we have it now, where we have lots of time. Were the men avid fishermen? Did they do a lot of fishing in Canoe Lake, do you think? Yeah, yeah, that, that was popular, yeah. I still have some uh, uh, some fish, uh, not skeletons, but fish uh, hides on, on, in my office with... Uh, uh, fish skins. Mounted on a on a piece of wood, and the the weight of the fish, and the time, they're uh, they're just kind of neat. Also, I was reading there were many leasehold families where fishing was the main source of protein. Yeah, you're probably right. They they they, they had good fishing. No question about that. Right. I think you mentioned once before that uh, every once in a while the family would make ice cream. How did they do that? Well, I, I still have the ice cream machine in my in my cupboard up there, and I think that what the, if I remember they, they used a, a special kind of a salt, rock salt, and they would grind grind the stuff up. And uh, I don't I, I can't remember how the ice cream came, but we enjoyed it. I've been tempted to try try the machine one time just for fun. Yes, I was going to say that would be fun to do to see if it actually works. One of the other artifacts that I that I had found and you had sent me years ago was this sort of list of rules. Can you tell us a little bit about what that was all about? I think I think they had a lot of time on their hands. This was was some of the humor that resulted. I don't know who made them up, but they uh, obviously they had their tongue in their cheek when they made some of this up. 
Well, one of my favorites was one that said that women are not allowed on the west side of the house or grounds before breakfast. I think in the mornings, the men would go skinny dipping. Oh. Women, women were not, not invited. <laughs> and, and when they had mixed couples there, of course, the women all, all slept upstairs and the men downstairs. Now, why would that have been? That's interesting. Well, I guess they didn't want any bad things happening in the middle of the night. No fraternizing in the night, yes. Yeah, that's I suppose. One of the other ones that I love because, uh, of course, and I and I think uh, I think you knew John Ridpath, a neighbor across the way. I mean, one of the things that he and I used to joke about, the fact was that we used to have this collection of the worst. All of our old clothes were what became the cottage clothes, and we didn't care whether they had holes or whether they were didn't fit quite right anymore. And I so I enjoyed one of the rules that says you're not allowed to wear stylish clothes. And I'm wondering whether that may have been the root of the cottage look that now, of course, roots and other stylish retailers have co-opted. Well, that's possible. The, uh, the only uh, well, the only day they wore stylish clothes <clears throat> was on Sunday. Men would, men would dress up, shirt and tie, women in dresses they would have a they would go over to Uncle Tom's and they had an organ there and they would play the organ and sing hymns and then they would go back and have, have lunch and everything and uh, men would go into this one room in the front of the cottage where they had their drinks and their smokes one of the other rules I found quite funny was the idea that there should be no more than one allowed in the hammock at once. Yeah, I don't know where that came from. <laughs> that was a good one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody got caught probably, and uh, this was a way of chastising. I suppose. And any idea why <laughs> girls co couldn't go out in the boats alone? Yeah, that, that defeats me. I have no idea. I, I don't know where that one came from. There was one other picture you had, and I wondered if you could tell us a little, you know, what you can recall of the background of, of your grandmother with a, a cross-cut saw. Oh yeah, well I gave I gave that picture to my granddaughter with the caption that this is where women's liberation began. <laughs> an example, and I'm sure there's some truth in that because uh, that was that was men's work. And these women were doing it. And mm. I think they were making, in their own time, a statement. That, that's my guess. And you remember the picture of them? They, they were all dressed up in heavy, heavy clothes for summer. You know, heavy dresses. And, you know, it's uh, kind of mind-boggling. But yeah. anyway, that, that's, uh, that, that's a good picture. So tell us more about your recollections of the kinds of things that you used to do as a kid up there. Well, I, I was, was there from the, almost day one. We're talking now 85 years. And the first, uh, first 15 years, I was there pretty well by myself all summer. Uh, except I was allowed a friend up for a week or two uh, each each summer, so I, I was I was the only kid on the island for for that period of time. At the same time, uh, for 
about five of those years, my dad was in, in Europe in, in the war. So I, I had all kinds of time by myself. And, and I guess I got used to that and, I, and always enjoy my own time. And I think that had a huge influence on uh, what, what I turned out to, 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 to follow as a vocation. That and my fact, the fact that my dad, when he did come back from the war, had uh, post-traumatic stress disorder. They called it uh, shell shock then, or, or battle fatigue. But he had the same thing. And he had a terrible time adjusting back in, into uh, Toronto business. Hmm. And I think I, I think between that and my experience uh, with so much time in myself at the cottage, I think that it had a huge effect on, on what I chose to do. And what was that? What did you end up doing as a profession? Well, I ended up uh, as a biologist, uh, fisheries biologist, and then other things. But it, it, it was a certain profession that allowed me to spend most of my time out of the office. And I think that was a, a big attraction. And I had all, all, all kinds of interesting uh, experiences. Any office person would never even hope to even think of it. So I never regretted my choice one bit. Uh, although just for fun, I ended up in my last five years of my career in an office. <laughs> did their family ever go on any canoe trips or did they go on day, you know, picnicking trips around the lake? Yeah, they, they, uh, the popular place was... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, berry picking at uh, D Lake Dam. Oh. And berry picking in uh, Molly's Island in Smoke Lake. Ah. And uh, yeah, they, they would do that probably once a week. Uh, the whole gang, you know, and all And I've got some pictures of them uh, picnicking, but they're all dressed up. You know, they've got their shirts and ties on. And, I mean, you would think they just stepped off the train. Wow. My, but that was what, what they did and uh, it must have been quite a long trip yeah were there lots of birds and other wildlife around when you were a kid up there well there was always uh, the girls camp to look at down then I used to sneak down to the island with my binoculars and uh, look at those birds <laughs> <laughs> and uh other than that, there is there, there's you know, typical chipmunks and like no no animals. Right. What's your sense of how canoe lake life has evolved since since then? Well, it, it, probably the biggest impact is it's been already accessed by road. That that's been a, been a huge and that that of course affects everything else. It gives you more access to everything. So there's less there's less uh, demand uh, to uh, exist at the garage. But I can, as you well know, the work never ends. The maintenance is always there and always constant and always in demand. Mm -hmm. But other than that, I, I think the there's just more more time to enjoy the uh, the ambience and the, uh, the atmosphere and everything. People are just 
luckier now, I think, in that sense. <laughs> yes, I can remember many, many weekends of multiple trips into Dwight or Huntsville for plumbing or electrical supplies and tidbits. So, Sandy, it's been just a joy talking with you again. But before we close out, i got a couple of other little questions. How you made toast? We didn't have toasters in those oh. days. And I found in my, when I was in our cottage, I found these hand tong things that we used to roast the toast yeah. on the by the fire. Yeah. Uh, we had that, that wire mesh that you close on either side of the toast and you put it over the burning flame and toast it in the fire, fireplace. Yeah, we, we used those. I remember those. And then I found in an old cupboard uh, one of those hand coffee grinders which oh, yeah. I guess is an heirloom now. <laughs> They're on eBay are quite expensive. <laughs> we still use one in the kitchen. <laughs> Grind the beans up. Yeah. When my grandfather was in Costa Rica, he had access to coffee beans. So they would they would bring up 50-pound bags of coffee beans and roast them. And, wow. And then hand grind them, just like that. Wow. <clears throat> <laughs> What a time it must have been. What a time. But I think that people, would you agree that the people were much hardier then than, than we are now? Oh, yeah. yeah. They didn't have any choice. Yeah. You know, either you do it or, or you know, like, everything was labor intensive for sure. Yeah. And uh, they, they had lots of, they were usually up there for you know, some, well, like I said, almost two and a half months. So they had time. They weren't distracted by going to Huntsville or uh, whatever, or Deerhurst. Right. <laughs> Lots of fun. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sandy. I really appreciate our time together. I'm glad we had an opportunity to share stories. Now, the, the one thing you remember yesterday I mentioned to you about the chocolate cake recipe. That's Hershey's Disappearing Chocolate Cake. And it's, it's a winner. If you ever want to try it. Well, I think I will post that on our webpage <laughs> so that folks can check it out if they want. That's great. <laughs> One final set of comments, which are likely only amusing to those like me who love Canoe Lake. I found it in a letter from Dr. Peary's brother to the Deputy Minister of Lands and Forests, dated 1926, where he confides, the place doesn't appeal to me at all, and I wouldn't keep it up. But it appeals to him because he makes it a meeting place for himself and his family on his annual visits from Costa Rica. A small island on an inland lake like Canoe Lake with all sorts of difficulty to reach is no charm for me at all. So much for the value and the attractions of Canoe Lake. Take away the boys' camp and the lake would relapse into its pristine isolation and dreariness with the roughest of shores. That is the condition that first appealed to my brother, but his tastes are peculiar to himself. But it has always been a problem to me what on earth there is that would induce anyone to waste good old summertime on. However, I don't want to knock the place, even if it doesn't appeal to me in the slightest. On that note, thanks again, Sandy, for your time and sharing with us so many of your fabulous family stories. 
For those interested, I've posted a few of the family's early photographs on my website, algonquinparkheritage.com. Oh, and don't forget, Christmas is soon going to be upon us. So if an Algonquin Defining Moments coffee mug journal, t-shirt, or all kinds of other things for yourself, a family member, or a fellow Algonquin park lover, or you'd like to become an Algonquin Defining Moments patron, please check out algonquinparkheritage.podbean.com or my website and click on Merch or the Patron Badges. Till next time...